I learned early on that you fight the fights you can win. If you think big and you allow yourself to think big and you believe in your thoughts and you believe in your abilities and yourself, there is no way that you will not do well. What will pull you down? I took the risks that I did, um, that I trusted my instincts, that I got out of my comfort zone. That what they do provides value, that they have a sense of purpose, that they're engaged. Hi there. Welcome to the Look for Strength podcast, where we share exceptional stories from exceptional individuals around the world for exceptional listeners. I'm your host, M.A. Look. Today, I'll be speaking with Cindy Toulon, an environmental advisor at RSK. We'll dive into challenges and environmental trends pertaining to her work in Iraq. Cindy ensures projects stay on track and works with local stakeholders to conduct environmental and social impact assessments, or ESIAs. She also collaborates with the government and universities to help rebuild Iraq after the war. Now, a bit of background on the war between the West and Iraq. After 9-11, the US and UK had reason to believe Saddam Hussein, the dictator in Iraq, possessed nuclear weapons in 2003. According to the Council on Foreign Relations, President George W. Bush sent forces to Iraq, as did the UK's Tony Blair. When they were there, they fought the Iraqi army. There had been underlying tensions between Sunni and Shiite groups in Iraq, as well as northern Kurdish groups with Baghdad's government. And this was exasperated even more by Western intervention to overthrow the Iraqi government, according to the Global Conflict Tracker. A few months after capturing Hussein, who was in hiding, they realized he did not have the weapons of mass destruction he said he had. In CNN's transcript of a January 2004 Congress hearing, the former U.S. weapons inspector David Kay said, quote, We were almost all wrong, end quote. Now back to Cindy and RSK. RSK's goal is to help clients rebuild Iraq after various wars in a more sustainable and responsible way. The concept of ESIAs, Environmental and Social Impact Assessments, ensure that when teams go in, they're doing it with everyone in mind. Let's get started. Hi, Cindy. How's it going? I'm great, Emma. Thank you. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you so much for uh, coming on the Look for Strength podcast. I really appreciate you taking the time. My pleasure. Thank you. So could you first please just give us a brief background as to what the political and environmental situation in Iraq is right now? Well, uh, we've been working there for quite a few years and uh, political it's always a bit tenuous. There's been a new government that's been put in that just came into power in October. So we're looking for lots of good changes there, hopefully making it a little bit less complicated to do business there. Um, environmentally, there's been so much destruction over the years in so many ways from uh, from the war, partially from the war, but also just lacking 
uh, knowledge and expertise and infrastructure to keep things um, in a better way for environmentally things like their flaring is really, really out of control. And so they're starting to build some facilities to help work with that. Sorry to cut you off for a second, but could you just explain what flaring is? When you produce oil, in the oil is also gas, so natural, naturally occurring gas, and it's obviously very flammable. So because there's no way to process it, because the oil companies there typically did not have the infrastructure for it, it would be separated off, but if you can think of like natural gas from your furnace or something like that, if there was a leak and someone lit a, a match, then there would be an explosion. So with the flaring, they have to direct it to a certain point, and this is constant um, gas production. So they put it up in a in a very tall flare stack, so a big pipe that goes up into the sky, mm-hmm. and uh, they release it there, but. It, it's always burning because when it's burning, they know where it is. If it's not burning, then it could be anywhere and everyone would be at risk. One thing, it's uh, really bad for the environment. Secondly, it is really, it's a commodity and it's it's money literally being burnt. And because they don't have appropriate processing for it, there's actually little droplets of crude oil that are in it. And then that gets... Um, at velocity pushed out of the flare stack and literally just drips on the ground um, for quite a distance, even a kilometer away, I would say you can probably feel remnants of crude oil on the ground. You can see it on Google Maps, but there's a lot of companies there that are now working um, and developing some processing plants that will process it. And that should be reduced by 2030 is the objective. There's some international anti-flaring campaigns and um, just agreements, international agreements to reduce flaring. Iraq has agreed by 2030 to reduce their flaring um, to zero. Whether that's obtainable, I'm not sure, but um, that will be a big start. It will help with the power, it will help with the air quality, it will help their economy, and um, it will just be a little bit of a better environment for for everything in, in the vicinity of any of the oil processing facilities. I think it's great that companies are coming in to help reduce flaring in Iraq. I think it's really kind of a prime example of how oil has quite literally cursed them and caused all this flaring. It's like such a prime example of the resource curse um, and oil being that for Iraq. So I was also just wondering, um, in your work in Iraq with RSK, how often uh, do you go to Iraq? Yeah, well, I um, I was just there a couple weeks ago. Um, I was just there for about 10 days. Um, I live uh, in Canada now, so um, it's a little bit less now, but I've been there probably, I'm going to say maybe about 30 times. And it's getting better. I can see, I can see that. And so that makes you kind of feel like Superwoman when you're over there because you think, hey, we're part of this solution and we can we can see things getting better. Um, and then, but there is still so many security issues there. It's very hard to even get approval to go in. So it's hard to understand that sometimes when you think, okay, we're going over there to help. We're going to help um, rebuild Iraq in a lot of ways. And yet it's very difficult to get there. And then when you're there, uh, just the security situation is still really so uncertain. There could be anything could happen at any time. So we always have 
security provision with us and we're in an armed convoy and stay in um, protected camps and accommodation that has a lot of security and a lot of guns, let's say. So, And how would you kind of describe Iraq to someone who hasn't been there? What's it like? The people there are pretty amazing. Um, I work with such a great team over there. Um, they're all super friendly and they're all really um, happy to share their culture with you. So that's been exciting. Um, I think what surprised me the most the first times I went over was was the actual destruction and the oil field flaring, which was just, it's everywhere. And breathing is sometimes difficult at different times of the day. Uh, the flaring is nonstop. Um, it's I've been through Baghdad, I've been through Basra and most of the South. It's desert. There is unfortunately, like I said, there's not a lot of waste management there. So there's a lot of garbage. Um, it's congested, it's busy. Uh, when you're in the oil fields, it's it's pretty quiet and you can see for miles. But once you get into the cities, it's like any major, major city, but without the normal rules of order. So in terms of roadways and lanes and traffic and building and the informal settlements. It's just really um, a bit messy. So what are the biggest issues that you see Iraq is facing right now through your environmental consulting? We see a lot of recurring themes, um, things like water security. There's just not enough and it's not clean and employment or lack thereof, or forced changes to work. Many issues around poor air quality and electricity. The company has power shortages and power cuts every single day. Um, healthcare has a lack of expertise and supplies and no bed space and lack of services. This comes up in our work a lot. Now, these are things that are not causes of our clients' projects but they are problems that our clients have to manage and be absolutely certain that they're not exasperating the situation. So our typical projects would include collecting environmental samples. Uh, so things like air quality, soil, groundwater, surface water, and then an analyze. And then we use the results as a baseline before construction or the operation of a new facility, say like a factory or a plant, or sometimes we use them as monitoring um, during the plant's operation just to confirm there are no um, environmental releases. And then something we've been doing more of in the last six or so years is the social impacts. That's the S in the ESIA. And it's something I've been finding really interesting alongside the environmental impacts. So once we understand and have a preliminary idea of the potential impacts, we go into the communities and we gather data like educational and employment statistics and water usage. And then once we have our data, then we can look at everything together to identify the significance of the impact. Will it really happen? How often could it happen? How severe would it be if it happened? And then we find ways to mitigate the impact. So finding those solutions and helping our clients um, with their environmental and social management of those of those impacts. RSK is doing quite a bit um, in, in Iraq right now. And I was just wondering in terms of like environmental regulations, um, what are Iraq's regulations around the environment right now? Or do they even have any? 
Well, the technical capacity of the regulators has not typically been very high. We've seen a lot of uh, improvements over the years. So they tend to adopt international standards um, rather than having some that are more context specific. Um, so we use them as comparative criteria, like for air, soil, or water, but they tend not to be very robust and they're a bit disjointed sometimes. And I can't really say I've ever seen any fines or punishments where their regulations are broken, not to say it doesn't happen, but I've never heard of them. So our clients are generally international entities and they have their own corporate standards and, and their own reputations really. So in terms of due diligence, we often look to a higher international standard. And sometimes our clients are also seeking funding from international lenders. So in some cases, we actually work um, to other standards like the World Bank or the International Finance Corporation. So if one of your clients wanted to start a project, let's say um, build a pipeline, what are some things that you would take into account and how would you kind of conduct your ESIAs? couple of projects here that we've worked on. So we always want to pick the best route possible. We want to avoid sensitive, ha sensitive habitat or water crossings, for example. And so we use our baseline data and, and that sort of knowledge to figure out um, how that will be. But then we have the social dimension and we can add in factors like what months the children attend the nearby school or what routes the children take to schools. So we can maybe plan our construction in a certain way. And so this was a very clear example of how important this social side of it is. is. So, mm -hmm. so what if there's a young girl and uh, we're building this pipeline near her school and she now has to walk an extra 30 minutes each way to and from school. But now the pipeline with the pipeline there, her father says, halas, no more school. And we know that this happens in Iraq. So we would want to mitigate that by selecting maybe a different routing or putting the pipeline underground at certain locations, for example, so she could cross safely and it didn't impact her route. Um, one other example, I guess I also pipelines um, with farmers and related to safety more than environmental. Uh, so there was an existing pipeline and there were farmers that were occupying the land right up to the pipeline, like literally right up against it. They were tomato farmers. And this was of course a major safety concern. We knew that the pipeline right of way, the width of it was going to be extended and that the farmers would be in harm's way. They actually already were in the case of an explosion, for example, it's rare, but it could still happen. And we do look at you know, the likelihood of these things happening. So we met with the farmers and learned each of their individual situations and, and really just tried to help them get to a better place that was better for them and was still safe for the pipeline. So maybe in some cases it was relocating them further back or they really actually wanted to move to Baghdad and be closer to other family members. So we yeah. supported them to do that. Or maybe actually they didn't want to be a tomato farmer anymore yeah. and would rather move to the city where they could get another job. And so based on the international standards, we knew that this was the right approach and we did it, but actually the local standards really wouldn't have um, had that happen. But outside oil fields, um, we were working last year with um, a master plan in, in three of the big municipalities, Basra, Zubair, and um, Al-Nashwa. And so we were working with architects and master planners to redesign certain parts of the city that allowed people to have um, better access to transportation, better access to services, recreational facilities, 
um, we looked at housing districts and informal settlements and how we could maybe make the city a little bit better um, in a better layout. Uh, so we did all the data collection and we did about 3,500 interviews with households and businesses to find out their individual situations and then did all the data analysis to decide to, to give some information to the project planners to help them make some other decisions. Those conversations with stakeholders are just so important because if you don't understand the needs of the people and although you might think that you're having a net positive impact, um, they might be having an impact um, that's negative on another part of um, the society or the local community. So I think it's really great that RSK really looks at the whole picture. I was also just wondering, um, kind of like personally, in the future, do you think that it's the responsibility of Western countries to play a role in helping repair Iraq? It, they definitely need some help. Um, they need to have some international expertise. They just don't have it in the country. Um, they do in some cases, I suppose. But so bringing in international expertise and standards and knowledge and sharing that experience and knowledge with the Iraqis is really important and giving them the means to be able to um, make some of these projects happen. Um, the cleanup um, of contamination that's there and water quality projects, they just don't have, they don't have the infrastructure and there's, they don't have the funding for it either. So that it just really needs to have some international funding. There's a lot of work being done with um, the World Bank and some United Nations entities. We've just won a project with the World Food Program. And so um, we're going to be helping this, working with, with the World Food Program with farmers and looking at solutions for them and helping them maximize their crops and get better information. But it does really need some international expertise. And um, like when you're talking about the destruction that's there, is that from the war or is that for other reasons? Um, it's, it's a bit of both. So um, definitely the war, there's been a couple wars, um, they've been a major issues so there's evidence of this everywhere even just burnt out tanks and military vehicles along the side of the road um but the wars just dis destroyed uh, destroyed a lot of the infrastructure and so they're still rebuilding that and it was really only in the last decade that um, this was ending the war ended and so um again just the power plants the sewage treatment plants water treatment plants they don't get rebuilt overnight mm. um and they've, they've got issues of poverty and food security and contaminated water. And so, so many things just are working against them. Um, the biodiversity in terms of environmental destruction, um, there is uh, uh, Mesopotamian marshes were essentially drained and destroyed by Saddam Hussein during, during the war. And I think both Christians and Muslims both agree that the Garden of Eden was actually in this area. So you can imagine... Mm. The lushness and the biodiversity that the, the marshes supported at that time and they're at about 85 percent maybe even less of what they used to be and um, that sustenance that they provided has been pretty much eliminated and there was a culture of marsh arabs that's pretty much been decimated because they, there's nothing there to keep them there anymore anymore you just see remnants of destroyed buildings everywhere um, that will just probably never be 
rebuilt, destroyed by bombs or shooting or, or whatever, whatever it is. And there is still a lot of violence in the country and, um, and security is, is still a big issue there. So it's, it's that part of it's not getting better necessarily. Right. And um, what's kind of Iraq's attitude towards the West, specifically like Western firms consulting like RSK? Well, I think it's probably twofold. So I think there's probably on the one side that there's uh, maybe a lot of distrust and um, and they don't necessarily enjoy having Westerners there. But on the other side, the work that international and Western companies is doing there is just really needed. Um, there's a lot of work building gas plants right now. So they didn't have infrastructure to to process the gas that comes associated gas that comes with oil production. And so obviously they've got a ton of oil, but that gas is just being flared and, and it has to be flared from a safety perspective, but it's just such a terrible thing for environmental air quality degradation. And so building these plants is really such an essential step of improving that air quality there. And it actually will bring a lot more prosperity to the country. Um, that might be a bit strong of a word, but in terms of diversifying their economy, they'll have a whole new product that they can use in the country. And let's face it, their power production is is not great. Um, like I said, they have power cuts every single day. So if they can use this gas, they can help with the power cuts. Um, there's a lot of fees that are paid uh, to the government and and profit sharing and that sort of thing. So really, these sorts of projects do have a benefit if people can can see that. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Cindy. Um, I've learned so much about environmental consulting and your work in Iraq and RSK's work. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Thank you, Emma, for having me. I really enjoyed uh, chatting with you.